Section six of Youth by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section six, chapters twenty one through twenty four. Chapter twenty one. Prince Ivan Ivanovitch. Now for the last call, the visit to Nikitskaya Street, I said to Kuzma, and we started for Prince Ivan Ivanovitch's mansion. Towards the end, a round of calls usually brings one a certain amount of self-assurance. Consequently I was approaching the Prince's abode in quite a tranquil frame of mind, when suddenly I remembered the Princess Kornikoff's words that I was his heir, and at the same moment caught sight of two carriages waiting at the portico. Instantly my former nervousness returned. Both the old major-domo who opened the door to me, and the footman who took my coat, and the two male and three female visitors whom I found in the drawing-room, and most of all Prince Ivan Ivanovitch himself, whom I found clad in a company frock-coat, and seated on a sofa, seemed to look at me as an heir, and so to eye me with ill-will. Yet the Prince was very gracious, and after kissing me, that is to say after pressing his cold, dry, flabby lips to my cheek for a second, asked me about my plans and pursuits, jested with me, inquired whether I still wrote verses of the kind which I used to indite in honour of my grandmother's birthdays, and invited me to dine with him that day. Nevertheless, in proportion as he grew the kinder, the more did I feel persuaded that his civility was only intended to conceal from me the fact that he disliked the idea of my being his heir. He had a custom, due to his false teeth, of which his mouth possessed a complete set, of raising his upper lip a little as he spoke, and producing a slight whistling sound from it. And whenever, on the present occasion, he did so, it seemed to me that he was saying to himself, A boy, a boy, I know it, and my heir, too, my heir. When we were children we had been used to calling the prince dear uncle, but now in my capacity of heir I could not bring my tongue to the phrase while to say, Your Highness, as did one of the other visitors, seemed derogatory to my self-esteem. Consequently, never once during that visit did I call him anything at all. The personage, however, who most disturbed me, was the old princess who shared with me the position of prospective inheritor, and who lived in the prince's house. While seated beside her at dinner, I felt firmly persuaded that the reason why she would not speak to me was that she disliked me for being her co-heir and that the prince, for his part, paid no attention to our side of the table for the reason that the princess and myself hoped to succeed him, and so were alike distasteful in his sight. "'You cannot think how I hated it all,' I said to Dmitrieff the same evening, in a desire to make a parade of disliking the notion of being an heir. Somehow I thought it the thing to do. "'You cannot think how I loathed the whole two hours that I spent there.' Yet he is a fine-looking old fellow, and was very kind to me," I added, wishing, among other things, to disabuse my friend of any possible idea that my loathing had arisen out of the fact that I had felt so small. It is only the idea that people may be classing me with the princess who lives with him, and who licks the dust off his boots. He is a wonderful old man, and good and considerate to everybody, but it is awful to see how he treats the princess. Money is a detestable thing and ruins all human relations. Do you know, I think it would be far the best thing for me to have an open explanation with the Prince," I went on, to tell him that I respect him as a man, 
but think nothing of being his heir, and that I desire him to leave me nothing, since that is the only condition on which I can, in future, visit his house." Instead of bursting out laughing when I said this, Dmitri pondered a while in silence, and then answered, "'You are wrong. Either you ought to refrain from supposing that people may be classing you with this princess of whom you speak, or, if you do suppose such a thing, you ought to suppose further that people are thinking what you yourself know quite well, namely, that such thoughts are so utterly foreign to your nature that you despise them and would never make them a basis for action. Suppose, however, that people do suppose you to suppose such a thing. Well, to sum up, he added, feeling that he was getting a little mixed in his pronouncements, you had much better not suppose anything of the kind. My friend was perfectly right though it was not until long, long afterwards that experience of life taught me the evil that comes of thinking, still worse of saying, much that seems very fine, taught me that there are certain thoughts which should always be kept to oneself, since brave words seldom go with brave deeds. I learnt, then, that the mere fact of giving utterance to a good intention often makes it difficult, nay, impossible, to carry that good intention into effect. Yet how is one to refrain from giving utterance to the brave, self-sufficient impulses of youth? Only long afterwards does one remember and regret them, even as one incontinently plucks a flower before its blooming, and subsequently finds it lying crushed and withered on the ground. The very next morning I, who had just been telling my friend Dmitri that money corrupts all human relations, and had, as we have seen, squandered the whole of my cash on pictures and Turkish pipes, accepted a loan of twenty roubles, which he suggested should pay for my travelling expenses into the country, and remained a long while thereafter in his debt. CHAPTER Twenty Two, INTIMATE CONVERSATION WITH MY FRIEND This conversation of ours took place in a phaeton on the way to Kuntsevo. Dmitri had invited me in the morning to go with him to his mother's, and had called for me after luncheon, the idea being that I should spend the evening, and perhaps also pass the night, at the country house where his family lived. Only when we had left the city and exchanged its grimy streets and the unbearably deafening clatter of its pavements for the open vista of fields and the subdued grinding of carriage-wheels on a dusty high road, while the sweet spring air and prospect enveloped us on every side, did I awake from the new impressions and sensations of freedom into which the past two days had plunged me. Dmitri was in his kind and sociable mood. That is to say, he was neither frowning nor blinking nervously, nor straightening his neck in his collar. For my own part, I was congratulating myself on those noble sentiments which I have expressed above, in the belief that they had led him to overlook my shameful encounter with Kolpikoff and to refrain from despising me for it. Thus we talked together on many an intimate subject which even a friend seldom mentions to a friend. He told me about his family whose acquaintance I had not yet made, about his mother, his aunt, and his sister, as also about her whom Woloda and Dubkoff believed to be his flame, and always spoke of as the lady with the chestnut locks. Of his mother he spoke with a certain cold and formal commendation as though to forestall any further mention of her, his aunt he extolled enthusiastically, though with a touch of condescension in his tone. His sister he scarcely mentioned at all, as though averse to doing so in my presence, 
but on the subject of the lady with the chestnut locks, whose real name was Lubov Sergeyevna, and who was a grown-up young lady living on a family footing with the Nekhludoffs, he discoursed with animation. "'Yes, she is a wonderful woman,' he said, with a conscious reddening of the face, yet looking me in the eyes with dogged temerity. True, she is no longer young, and even rather elderly, as well as by no means good-looking. But as for loving a mere featherhead, a mere beauty, well, I never could understand that, for it is such a silly thing to do." Dmitri said this as though he had just discovered a most novel and extraordinary truth. "'I am certain, too, that such a soul, such a heart and principles, as are hers, are not to be found elsewhere in the world of the present day.' I do not know whence he had derived the habit of saying that few good things were discoverable in the world of the present day, but at all events he loved to repeat the expression, and it somehow suited him. Only I am afraid, he went on quietly, after thus annihilating all such men as were foolish enough to admire mere beauty, I am afraid that you will not understand or realize her quickly. She is modest, even secretive, and by no means fond of exhibiting her beautiful and surprising qualities. Now my mother, who, as you will see, is a noble, sensible woman, has known Lubov Sergeyevna for many years, yet even to this day she does not properly understand her. Shall I tell you why I was out of temper last evening when you were questioning me? Well, you must know that the day before yesterday Lubov asked me to accompany her to Ivan Yakovlevitch's—you have heard of him, I suppose, the fellow who seems to be mad, but who in reality is a very remarkable man? Well, Lubov is extremely religious, and understands Ivan Yakovlevitch to the full. She often goes to see him, and converses with him, and gives him money for the poor, money which she has earned herself. She is a marvellous woman, as you will see. Well, I went with her to Ivan's, and felt very grateful to her for having afforded me the opportunity of exchanging a word with so remarkable a man. But my mother could not understand our action at all, and discerned in it only superstition. Consequently, last night she and I quarrelled for the first time in our lives. A very bitter one it was, too," he concluded, with a convulsive shrug of his shoulders, as though the mention of it recalled the feelings which he had then experienced. "'And what are your intentions about it all?' I inquired, to divert him from such a disagreeable recollection. That is to say, how do you imagine it is going to turn out? Do you ever speak to her about the future, or about how your love or friendship are going to end?' "'Do you mean, do I intend to marry her eventually?' he inquired in his turn, with a renewed blush, but turning himself round and looking me boldly in the face? "'Yes, certainly,' I replied, as I settled myself down. "'We are both of us grown up, as well as friends, so we may as well discuss our future life as we drive along. No one could very well overlook or overhear us now.' "'Why should I not marry her?' he went on in response to my reassuring reply. "'It is my aim, as it should be the aim of every honourable man to be as good and as happy as possible, and with her, if she should still be willing when I have become more independent, I should be happier and better than with the greatest beauty in the world." Absorbed in such conversation, we hardly noticed that we were approaching Gunsevo, or that the sky was becoming overcast and beginning to threaten rain. On the right the sun was slowly sinking behind the ancient trees of the Kutsevo Park. One half of its brilliant disk obscured with grey, subluminous cloud, 
and the other half sending forth spokes of flaming light which threw the old trees into striking relief as they stood there with their dense crowns of green showing against a blue patch of sky. The light and shimmer of that patch contrasted sharply with the heavy pink cloud which lay massed above a young birch-tree visible on the horizon before us, while a little further to the right the party-coloured roofs of the Kunsevo mansion could be seen projecting above a belt of trees and undergrowth, one side of them reflecting the glittering rays of the sun, and the other side harmonizing with the more lowering portion of the heavens. Below us, and to the left, showed the still blue of a pond where it lay surrounded with pale green laburnums, its dull, concave-looking depths repeating the trees in more sombre shades of colour over the surface of a hillock. Beyond the water spread the black expanse of a ploughed field, with the straight line of a dark green ridge by which it was bisected running far into the distance and there joining the leaden, threatening horizon. On either side of the soft road along which the phaeton was pursuing the even tenor of its way, bright green, tangled, juicy belts of rye were sprouting here and there into stalk. Not a motion was perceptible in the air, only a sweet freshness, and everything looked extraordinarily clear and bright. Near the road I could see a little brown path winding its way among the dark green quarter-grown stems of rye and somehow that path reminded me vividly of our village, and somehow, through some connection of thought, the idea of that village reminded me vividly of Sonetchka, and so of the fact that I was in love with her. Notwithstanding my fondness for Dmitri and the pleasure which his frankness had afforded me, I now felt as though I desired to hear no more about his feelings and intentions with regard to Lubov Sergeyevna, but to talk unstintedly about my own love for Sonetchka who seemed to me an object of affection of a far higher order. Yet for some reason or another I could not make up my mind to tell him straight out how splendid it would seem, when I had married Sonetchka and we were living in the country, of how we should have little children who would crawl about the floor and call me papa, and of how delighted I should be when he, Dmitri, brought his wife, Lubov Sergeyevna, to see us, wearing an expensive gown. Accordingly, instead of saying all that, I pointed to the setting sun, and merely remarked, "'Look, Dmitri, how splendid!' To this, however, Dmitri made no reply, since he was evidently dissatisfied at my answering his confession, which it had cost him so much to make, by directing his attention to natural objects, to which he was in general indifferent. Upon him nature had an effect altogether different to what she had upon myself, for she affected him rather by her industry than by her beauty. He loved her rather with his intellect than with his senses. "'I am absolutely happy,' I went on, without noticing that he was altogether taken up with his own thoughts and oblivious of anything that I might be saying. "'You will remember how I told you about a girl with whom I used to be in love when I was a little boy. Well, I saw her again only this morning, and am now infatuated with her.' Then I told him, despite his continued expression of indifference, about my love and about all my plans for my future connubial happiness. Strangely enough, no sooner had I related in detail the whole strength of my feelings than I instantly became conscious of its diminution. The rain overtook us just as we were turning into the avenue of birch-trees which led to the house, but it did not really wet us. I only knew that it was raining by the fact that I felt a drop fall, first on my nose and then on my hand, and heard something begin to patter upon the young viscous leaves of the birch-trees, as, 
drooping their curly branches overhead, they seemed to imbibe the pure shining drops with an avidity which filled the whole avenue with scent. We descended from the carriage, so as to reach the house the quicker through the garden, but found ourselves confronted at the entrance door by four ladies, two of whom were knitting, one reading a book, and the fourth walking to and fro with a little dog. Thereupon Dmitri began to present me to his mother, sister, and aunt, as well as to Lubov Sergeyevna. For a moment they remained where they were, but almost instantly the rain became heavier. "'Let us go into the veranda. You can present him to us there,' said the lady whom I took to be Dmitri's mother, and we all of us ascended the entrance steps. CHAPTER Twenty Three, THE NECLODOFFS From the first, the member of this company who struck me the most was Lubov Sergeyevna, who, holding a lap-dog in her arms and wearing stout-laced boots, was the last of the four ladies to ascend the staircase, and twice stopped to gaze at me intently and then kiss her little dog. She was anything but good-looking, since she was red-haired, thin, short, and slightly crooked. What made her plain face all the plainer was the queer way in which her hair was parted to one side. It looked like the wigs which bald women contrive for themselves. However much I should have liked to applaud my friend, I could not find a single comely feature in her. Even her brown eyes, though expressive of good humour, were small and dull, were in fact anything but pretty. While her hands, those most characteristic of features, were, though neither large nor ill-shaped, coarse and red. As soon as we reached the veranda, each of the ladies except Dmitri's sister, Varenika, who also had been regarding me attentively out of her large, dark-gray eyes, said a few words to me before resuming her occupation, while Varenika herself began to read aloud from a book which she held on her lap and steadied with her finger. The Princess Maria Ivanovna was a tall, well-built woman of forty. To judge by the curls of half-gray hair which descended below her cap, one might have taken her for more, but as soon as ever one observed the fresh, extraordinarily tender, and almost wrinkleless face, as well as, most of all, the lively, cheerful sparkle of the large eyes, one involuntarily took her for less. Her eyes were black and very frank, her lips thin and slightly severe, her nose regular and slightly inclined to the left, and her hands ringless, large, and almost like those of a man, but with finely tapering fingers. She wore a dark blue dress, fastened to the throat, and sitting closely to her firm, still youthful waist, a waist which she evidently pinched. Lastly, she held herself very upright, and was knitting a garment of some kind. As soon as I stepped on to the veranda she took me by the hand, drew me to her as though wishing to scrutinize me more closely, and said, as she gazed at me with the same cold, candid glance as her son's, that she had long known me by report from Dmitri and that therefore, in order to make my acquaintance thoroughly, she had invited me to stay these twenty-four hours in her house. "'Do just as you please here,' she said, "'and stand on no ceremony whatever with us, even as we shall stand on none with you. Pray, walk, read, listen, or sleep, as the mood may take you.'" Sophia Ivanovna was an old maid, and the princess's younger sister, though she looked the elder of the two. She had that exceedingly overstuffed appearance which old maids always present, who are short of stature but wear corsets. It seemed as though her healthiness had shifted upwards to the point of choking her. Her short fat hands would not meet below her projecting bust, 
and the line of her waist was scarcely visible at all. Notwithstanding that the Princess Maria Ivanovna had black hair and eyes, while Sophia Ivanovna had white hair and large, vivacious, tranquilly blue eyes, a rare combination, there was a great likeness between the two sisters, for they had the same expression, nose, and lips. The only difference was that Sophia's nose and lips were a trifle coarser than Maria's, and that when she smiled those features inclined towards the right, whereas Maria's inclined towards the left. Sophia, to judge by her dress and coiffure, was still youthful at heart, and would never have displayed grey curls, even if she had possessed them. Yet at first her glance and bearing towards me seemed very proud, and made me nervous, whereas I at once felt at home with the princess. Perhaps it was only Sophia's stoutness and a certain resemblance to portraits of Catherine the Great that gave her in my eyes a haughty aspect. But at all events I felt quite intimidated when she looked at me intently, and said, Friends of our friends are our friends also. I became reassured and changed my opinion about her only when, after saying those words, she opened her mouth and sighed deeply. It may be that she owed her habit of sighing after every few words, with a great distension of the mouth and a slight drooping of her large blue eyes, to her stoutness, yet it was none the less one which expressed so much good humour that I at once lost all fear of her, and found her actually attractive. Her eyes were charming, her voice pleasant and musical, and even the flowing lines of her fullness seemed to my youthful vision not wholly lacking in beauty. I had imagined that Lubov Sergeyevna, as my friend's friend, would at once say something friendly and familiar to me. Yet, after gazing at me fixedly for a while, as though in doubt whether the remark she was about to make to me would not be too friendly, she at length asked me what faculty I was in. After that she stared at me as before, in evident hesitation as to whether or not to say something civil and familiar, until, remarking her perplexity, I besought her with a look to speak freely. Yet all she then said was, They tell me the universities pay very little attention to science now and turned away to call her little dog. All that evening she spoke only in disjointed fragments of this kind, fragments which had no connection either with the point or with one another. Yet I had such faith in Dmitri, and he so often kept looking from her to me with an expression which mutely asked me, Now what do you think of that? That though I entirely failed to persuade myself that in Lubov Sergeyevna there was anything to speak of, I could not bear to express the thought even to myself. As for the last member of the family, Veronika, she was a well-developed girl of sixteen. The only good features in her were a pair of dark grey eyes, which, in their expression of gaiety mingled with quiet attention, greatly resembled those of her aunt, a long coil of flaxen hair, and extremely delicate, beautiful hands. I expect, Monsieur Nicholas, you will find it wearisome to hear a story begun from the middle said Sofia Ivanovna, with her good-natured sigh as she turned over some pieces of clothing which she was sewing. The reading aloud had ceased for the moment because Dmitri had left the room on some errand or another. "'Or perhaps you have read Rob Roy before,' she added. At that period I thought it incumbent upon me, in virtue of my student's uniform, to reply in a very clever and original manner to every question put to me by people whom I did not know very well and regarded such short, clear answers as, yes, no, I like it, or I do not care for it, as things to be ashamed of. Accordingly, looking down at my new and fashionably cut trousers, 
and the glittering buttons on my tunic, I replied that I had never read Rob Roy, but that it interested me greatly to hear it, since I preferred to read books from the middle rather than from the beginning. It is twice interesting, I added with a self-satisfied smirk, for then one can guess what has gone before as well as what is to come after. The princess smiled what I thought was a forced smile, but one which I discovered later to be her only one. "'Well, perhaps that is true,' she said. "'But tell me, Nicholas, you will not be offended if I drop the monsieur. Tell me, are you going to be in town long? When do you go away?' "'I do not know quite. Perhaps to-morrow, or perhaps not for some while yet,' I replied for some reason or another, though I knew perfectly well that in reality we were to go to-morrow. "'I wish you could stop longer, both for your own sake and for Dmitri's,' she said in a meditative manner. "'At your age friendship is a weak thing.' I felt that every one was looking at me, and waiting to see what I should say, though certainly Veronika made a pretense of looking at her aunt's work. I felt, in fact, as though I were being put through an examination, and that it behoved me to figure in it as well as possible. "'Yes, to me Dmitri's friendship is most useful,' I replied. "'But to him mine cannot be of any use at all, since he is a thousand times better than I.' Dmitri could not hear what I said, or I should have— feared his detecting the insincerity of my words. Again the princess smiled her unnatural, yet characteristically natural, smile. "'Just listen to him,' she said. "'But it is you who are the little monster of perfection.' "'Monster of perfection,' I thought to myself. "'That is splendid. I must make a note of it. Yet, to dismiss yourself—he has been extraordinarily clever in that quarter,' she went on, in a lower tone which pleased me somehow, as she indicated Lubov Sergeyevna with her eyes, since he has discovered in our poor little auntie—such was the pet name which they gave Lubov—all sorts of perfections which I, who have known her and her little dog for twenty years, had never suspected. Veronika, go and tell them to bring me a glass of water,' she added, letting her eyes wander again. Probably she had bethought her that it was too soon, or not entirely necessary, to let me— into all the family secrets. Yet no, let him go, for he has nothing to do, while you are reading. "'Pray go to the door, my friend,' she said to me, and walk about fifteen steps down the passage, then halt and call out pretty loudly, "'Peter, bring Maria Ivanovna a glass of iced water,' and she smiled her curious smile once more. "'I expect she wants to say something about me in my absence,' I thought to myself, as I left the room. I expect she wants to remark that she can see very clearly that I'm a very, very clever young man. Hardly had I taken a dozen steps when I was overtaken by Sofia Ivanovna, who, though fat and short of breath, trod with surprising lightness and agility. "'Merci, mon cher,' she said. "'I will go and tell them myself.'" CHAPTER Twenty Four, LOVE Sophia Ivanovna, as I afterwards came to know her, was one of those rare young old women who are born for family life, but to whom that happiness has been denied by fate. Consequently, all that store of their love which should have been poured out upon a husband and children becomes pent up in their hearts until they suddenly decide to let it overflow upon a few chosen individuals. Yet so inexhaustible is that store of old maid's love that despite the number of individuals so selected, there remains an abundant surplus of affection which they lavish upon all by whom they are surrounded, upon all, good or bad, whom they may chance to meet in their daily life. 
Of love there are three kinds, love of beauty, the love which denies itself, and practical love. Of the desire of a young man for a young woman, as well as of the reverse instance, I am now speaking, for of such tendresses I am wary, seeing that I have been too unhappy in my life to have been able ever to see in such affection a single spark of truth, but rather a lying pretense, in which sensuality, connubial relations, money, and the wish to bind hands or to unloose them, have rendered feeling such a complex affair as to defy analysis. Rather, I am speaking of that love for a human being which, according to the spiritual strength of its possessor, concentrates itself either upon a single individual, upon a few, or upon many, of love for a mother, a father, a brother, little children, a friend, a compatriot, of love, in short, for one's neighbor. Love of beauty consists in a love of the sense of beauty and of its expression. People who thus love conceive the object of their affection to be desirable only in so far as it arouses in them that pleasurable sensation of which the consciousness and the expression soothe the senses. They change the object of their love frequently, since their principal aim consists in ensuring that the voluptuous feeling of their adoration shall be constantly titillated. To preserve in themselves this sensuous condition, they talk unceasingly, and in the most elegant terms, on the subject of the love which they feel, not only for its immediate object, but also for objects upon which it does not touch at all. This country of ours contains many such individuals, individuals of that well-known class who, cultivating the beautiful, not only discourse of their cult to all and sundry, but speak of it pre-eminently in French. It may seem a strange and ridiculous thing to say, but I am convinced that among us we have had in the past, and still have, a large section of society, notably women, whose love for their friends, husbands, or children would expire to-morrow if they were debarred from dilating upon it in the tongue of France. Love of the second kind, renunciatory love, consists in a yearning to undergo self-sacrifice for the object beloved regardless of any consideration whether such self-sacrifice will benefit or injure the object in question. There is no evil which I would not endure to show both the world and him or her whom I adore my devotion. There we have the formula of this kind of love. People who thus love never look for reciprocity of affection, since it is a finer thing to sacrifice yourself for one who does not comprehend you. Also. They are always painfully eager to exaggerate the merits of their sacrifice, usually constant in their love, for the reason that they would find it hard to forego the kudos of the deprivations which they endure for the object beloved, always ready to die, to prove to him or her the entirety of their devotion, but sparing of such small daily proofs of their love as call for no special effort of self-immolation. They do not much care whether you eat well, sleep well, keep your spirits up, or enjoy good health, nor do they ever do anything to obtain for you those blessings, if they have it in their power, but, should you be confronting a bullet, or have fallen into the water, or stand in danger of being burnt, or have had your heart broken in a love affair, well, for all these things they are prepared if the occasion should arise. Moreover, people addicted to love of such a self-sacrificing order are invariably proud of their love, exacting, jealous, distrustful and, strange to tell, anxious that the object of their adoration should incur perils, 
so that they may save it from calamity and console it thereafter, and even be vicious, so that they may purge it of its vice. Suppose now that you are living in the country with a wife who loves you in this self-sacrificing manner. You may be healthy and contented and have occupations which interest you, while on the other hand your wife may be too weak to superintend the household work, which in consequence will be left to the servants, or to look after the children, who in consequence will be left to the nurses, or to put her heart into any work whatsoever, and all because she loves nobody and nothing but yourself. She may be patently ill, yet she will say not a word to you about it for fear of distressing you. She may be patently ennui, yet for your sake she will be prepared to be so for the rest of her life. She may be patently depressed because you stick so persistently to your occupations, whether sport, books, farming, state, service, or anything else, and see clearly that they are doing you harm, yet for all that she will keep silence and suffer it to be so. Yet, should you but fall sick, and despite her own ailments and your prayers that she will not distress herself in vain, your loving wife will remain sitting inseparably by your bedside. Every moment you will feel her sympathetic gaze resting upon you, and, as it were, saying, There, I told you so, but it is all one to me, and I shall not leave you. In the morning you may be a little better, and move into another room. The room, however, will be insufficiently warmed or set in order. The soup which alone you feel you could eat will not have been cooked, nor will any medicine have been sent for. Yet, though worn out with night-watching, your loving wife will continue to regard you with an expression of sympathy, to walk about on tiptoe, and to whisper unaccustomed and obscure orders to the servants. You may wish to be read to, and your loving wife will tell you with a sigh that she feels sure you will be unable to hear her reading, and only grow angry at her awkwardness in doing it, wherefore you would better not be read to at all. You may wish to walk about the room, and she will tell you that it would be far better for you not to do so. You may wish to talk with some friends who have called, and she will tell you that talking is not good for you. At nightfall the fever may come upon you again, and you may wish to be left alone, whereupon your loving wife, though wasted, pale, and full of yawns, will go on sitting in a chair opposite you, as dusk falls, until her very slightest movement, her very slightest sound, rouses you to feelings of anger and impatience. You may have a servant who has lived with you for twenty years, and to whom you are attached, and who would tend you well, and to your satisfaction during the night, for the reason that he has been asleep all day, and is, moreover, paid a salary for his services. Yet your wife will not suffer him to wait upon you. No, everything she must do herself with her weak, unaccustomed fingers, of which you follow the movements with suppressed irritation, as those pale members do their best to uncork a medicine-bottle, to snuff a candle, to pour out physic, or to touch you in a squeamish sort of way. If you are an impatient, hasty sort of man, and beg of her to leave the room, you will hear by the vexed, distressed sounds which come from her that she is humbly sobbing and weeping behind the door, and whispering foolishness of some kind to the servant. Finally, if you do not die, your loving wife, who has not slept during the whole three weeks of your illness, a fact of which she will constantly remind you, will fall ill in her turn, waste away, suffer much, and become even more incapable of any useful pursuit than she was before, while by the time that you have regained your normal state of health she will express to you her self-sacrificing affection only by shedding around you a kind of benignant dullness 
which involuntarily communicates itself both to yourself and to every one else in your vicinity. The third kind of love, practical love, consists of a yearning to satisfy every need, every desire, every caprice, nay, every vice, of the being beloved. People who love thus always love their life long, since the more they love, the more they get to know the object beloved, and the easier they find the task of loving it, that is to say, of satisfying its desires. Their love seldom finds expression in words, but if it does so it expresses itself neither with assurance nor beauty, but rather in a shamefaced awkward manner, since most people of this kind invariably have misgivings that they are loving unworthily. People of this kind love even the faults of their adored one, for the reason that those faults afford them the power of constantly satisfying new desires. They look for their affection to be returned, and even deceive themselves into believing that it is returned and are happy accordingly. Yet, in the reverse case, they will still continue to desire happiness for their beloved one, and try by every means in their power, whether moral or material, great or small, to provide it. Such practical love it was, love for her nephew, for her niece, for her sister, for Lubov Sergeyevna, and even for myself, because I loved Dmitri, that shone in the eyes, as well as in the every word and movement, of Sofia Ivanovna. Only long afterwards did I learn to value her at her true worth. Yet even now the question occurred to me, what has made Dmitri, who throughout has tried to understand love differently to other young fellows, and has always had before his eyes the gentle, loving Sofia Ivanovna, suddenly fall so deeply in love with the incomprehensible Lubov Sergeyevna, and declare that in his aunt he can only find good qualities? Verily, it is a true saying that a prophet hath no honour in his own country. One of two things. Either every man has in him more of bad than of good, or every man is more receptive to bad than to good. Lubov Sergeyevna he has not known for long, whereas his aunt's love he has known since the day of his birth. End of section 6 Recording by Bill Borst